You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and in today's episode, we are going to talk about continuation, repetition, and originality, and desperate attempts to cash in on previous success. I'm talking, of course, about sequels, or at least how many see them and talk about them. And isn't that sad? Why is it that choosing to continue to build, explore, or develop a character or a world is seen with so much disdain? Why is it seen as an original? And why are sequels not seen as exciting continuations coming from the creator's need to tell or explore more, to take us to new places, or to spellbind us once again? Well, sequels obviously keep making big bucks at the box office, and franchises pick up enormous fan bases. There does appear to be a collective perception, at least, of critics wagging their fingers at a distance. Are are sequels just never worth it? Are they a waste of time? A A waste of talent? Well, we'll disagree quite strongly on that. In this episode, we will look at the sequels we don't just think are good, acceptable, or great. We look at sequels we believe are better than the so-called originals and try to figure out just why sequels have gotten such a terrible reputation. And to do this, I'm joined by my three absolutely wonderful co-hosts, Tom. Hi, this is Tom. I'm really looking forward to discussing the stigma around sequels today. Sol. Hi, this is Sol from Australia, and yes, I'm also interested in discussing this topic because I actually consider quite a few sequels to be stronger than the original. And Mathieu. Hi, everyone. So, everyone, if I asked you to name only one film, the best sequel of all time, if you will, uh, what is it, and is it actually better than the original? Okay, so this is a question that's been spinning around in my mind for a number of weeks until I finally realized that I had the perfect example. One of my favorite films of recent years, which I believe I have mentioned on that podcast uh, previously, it's Blade Runner 2049. I absolutely love this film. I think it's a brilliant sequel that builds upon the ideas in the original and takes it in a new direction to deliver it to a new generation of audiences. Whilst I think that Blade Runner, the original, is a classic and it's revered for all of the right reasons, Blade Runner 2049 just steps it up a notch and does something else for me. The combination of the the visuals, the incredible music, the way the storyline unfolds, it just really hit the spot for me. And I think it's a a brilliant example of a, a sequel that is better than the original. My choice for the greatest sequel of all time might be a surprising one, but if you know me, it's actually not surprising. The movie I'm thinking of is Scream 2, Craven's sequel to the original Scream movie. What I like about it, like Tom said with the Blade Runner sequel, it's a film that builds on everything in the original and it expands on it even more. Uh, What's really great about Scream 2 and why it's really relevant to this podcast is that it's a sequel about sequels and about sequels in the industry and you have Randy running off these rules for sequels. 
that all of the rules Scream 2 actually does end up following, except for the rule that sequels suck, because it's actually a pretty good film. But yeah, everything in it from the opening scene, which is a little bit of a film within a film. You actually have the original Scream film, which Wes Craven has redone and reshot and made it into stabs. You've got the original film as a film with inside this film. And then there's a murder that takes place inside the cinema. And all the patrons just think it's part of the show. It's a lot like the Lamberto Bava film, Demons, where these people are so immersed in what they're watching, they don't realise that a murder is taking place, and all this horror is taking place. And just from there, just like totally gets off. The whole thing, it's a very funny ride, as all the Scream films are. There's a great mystery driving it. As per all of the Scream films, when uh, you rewatch it, it just gets more and more interesting knowing who Ghostface is. And in particular, looking how Ghostface in Scream 2 tries to throw the people off the scent. So, yeah, I just love the film. I think I've seen it eight times now. I don't know if it's better than the original Scream. It's not as scary, which is why I tend to write the first Scream film as higher up. But I'd say it's on par with the first Scream film. I'm going to cheat uh, because <laughs> technically my favorite sequel would be John of the Dead, uh, George Romero mm. film. But I don't really think of it as a sequel. I actually even saw it before I saw Night of the Living Dead. And though, I mean, technically it is a sequel, but there's no characters in common. Really the only thing they have in common is zombie apocalypse going on, which at the time was specific to Romero, but now has become such a basic genre. But it doesn't really feel like a sequel watching it now. So my answer is going to be a more idiosyncratic one. <laughs> and that's the second Asterix and Obelix film. <laughs> Maybe you're familiar with the comic. It's a classic of French-Belgian comic books, I guess. And they have been adapted into big films because they're very popular in France. And the first one is okay. It's kind of funny. But the second one, called uh, Mission Cléopâtre, Mission Cléopatra, is uh, honestly a classic of French comedy. It might be my, f I think it is my favorite French comedy of all time. It has this comic book feeling in terms of the visual language it uses. It's filled with references to a bunch of things. It kind of melts the comedic takes of the original material with the sensibility of Alain Chabard, who was a very famous comedian in France in the 90s and well, still today. And yeah, it's just, it's just extremely funny. Kind of goes everywhere. It uses the medium of film in creative ways, as well as paying homage to the source material. And it really builds on, while still keeping some of the things that made the first film a success, even though I don't definitely look like it as much, uh, namely the main characters. And yeah, it, yeah, it's my favorite sequel of all time, if we are looking really at something that's a sequel rather than a film taking place in the same universe. Can I ask Matthew a question before we move on? Go ahead. You mentioned liking Dawn of the Dead a lot, and look, I've watched it, I think, three times now, and it's one of those films that I just don't get. But what's interesting is that Dan O'Bannon made his own sequel to Night of the Living Dead with Return of the Living Dead in the 1980s. Everything is played up as a comedy. It's really funny. It's really out there. The special effects are amazing. It's the first film which actually had zombies crying out for brains, and I actually consider that one to be superior to Night of the Living Dead. I unfortunately haven't seen it. I think Dawn of the Dead also has some comedy in it. I mean, it, it is both kind of satirical and an adventure film, really, a kind of a Rio Bravo type of, type of thing with uh, people uh, in, a, in a secluded place and having to defend against, against other people. 
there is a bit of comedy in Dawn, I know, with like the zombies going about or whatever, like they're shopping and based yeah. on their like basic instincts and like just wandering around the mono is a bit of comedy, but Return of the Living Dead is an outright comedy, which I thought was a really great example of a sequel, though and it's not really a sequel, it's sort of a sequel that just takes Night of the Living Dead and just does something completely different with it to make it something more interesting. And I'm wondering if Tom's got anything to say about Return of the Living Dead, because I know he's a horror fan. Yeah, I agree. Return of the Living Dead is is a great comedy. As you said, it's played far more for laughs than than Dawn of the Dead because it is Dawn of the Dead is actually quite creepy in some parts. But I actually think Day of the Dead's also worth mentioning as a a great sequel as well. There, I don't know if we're digressing and delving into this a bit early, but yeah, there, there's some great sequels in the Living Dead series. Yeah, no, I, I love Day of the Dead and the whole idea of trying to retrain the zombie and get him to like be normal again and also get slammed a lot. But I love Diary of the Dead. I thought that was really innovative with everything taken online. But we are probably going a little bit off topic. Well, we're quite on topic, really, with uh, this going through this franchise line and seeing everything that could be mentioned there, which is uh, which is excellent. And I do agree that Dawn of the Dead is a better film, but I think the first two or three films in that series really do stand out as well. Now, for my favorite sequel of all time, I think I'm in a bit of a tie. So the easiest one would be one that Saul disagrees on quite strongly, which would be Godfather Part 2. But since we keep talking about maybe doing a Godfather podcast, I'll leave that be, especially because it's essentially the same quality range as the first. So instead, I'll talk a little bit about In the Mood for Love, which was Moncari's sequel to Days of Being Wild. And I think the reason why it's so much better than the first film, in my opinion, and some of you might disagree, is that it just takes it in a completely different direction. I mean, Maggie Shang is obviously the same character, and while Tony Shang was in the first film, I think just changing it so completely, making it all about this idea of love and this almost loop of love and poetry and romance. I think uh, in the movie for love, it's one of those films you really feel that passion and you feel it so strongly and it focuses in on that. Whereas this being well was, I'm not going to say conventional for Monkar Wai, but it, it is more of a normal uh, love story with crime elements, etc. thrown in. I just think that In the Mood for Love takes the characters and takes in a completely different direction. And it, it, it doesn't even feel like a sequel. I know talking about it leading up to this, many people had completely forgotten it was a sequel. So I, I really think In the Mood for Love is one of those films that stands on its own. It's obviously considered one of the greatest films of all time as well by a lot of critics. So I think that's one of the few films that kind of has, along with Godfather Part 2, has beaten this reputation of sequels being worse than original. And in a bit of an ironic twist, I suppose, almost erasing the first film a little bit and making people uh, hesitate to call it a sequel just because it is so spectacular. I won't let Days of Being Wild be erased because I actually like it better than In the Mood for Love. I did not think of them as, as sequels. I guess, yeah, we, we talked about it earlier, Chris. I think I saw In the Mood for Love first. I thought they were part of a trilogy, but more like a, a thematic trilogy. But yeah, they're, they're very different moods. And I guess the, the languid mood of, uh, kind of passionate mood also of Days of Being Wild is more to my speed and the really repression in, in the mood for love. But yeah, I, I, I like both, but I prefer the original in this case. In the Mood for Love is a beautiful film. I've seen it two or three times over the years, and it's like my, I think it's my second favorite film of 
year 2000 and obviously one of the best films of the decade. And I had no idea at all that it was a sequel until Chris said that it would be talking about in this podcast. I'm like, what? Really? It's a sequel? I haven't seen Days of Being Wild. It's one of those films that I own and I've just never got around to watching. I know that I'm at 2046 or 2046, whatever is a sequel to In the Mood for Love, but I had no idea that In the Mood for Love is a sequel itself. Yeah, I guess it does kind of stand on its own that I've seen it two or three times and I had no idea that there was a film coming before it and it works so well. I just love the music in it. I love the uh, looks of it, the lush photography. But yeah, no idea at all that it was a sequel. And then to sheet a little bit more, I thought I could also bring up 2046 because 2046 is also better than Dice of Being Wild, <laughs> in my opinion, at least. And it ties in with what Matteo talked about with Tempo because this one is essentially much more a sequel to In the Mood for Love as well, because Tony Long's character, Sean Mouan, was barely in the first film. I mean, he was really just in the ending, setting him up for In the Mood for Love in a way. And here it's really all about him and reminiscing about the affair in In the Mood for Love and essentially tying it in with a sci-fi story he's writing at the same time. And it's just so visually spectacular. It's so trippy it's gorgeous it's bizarre it's creative and it, it just has a completely different tempo a completely different experience and i think each of these films could really be seen like, as a standalone film but they do echo each other and they do carry the same characters along all three films and i think all three films are also quite beautiful even though unlike almost every other trilogy i, I prefer the second and third film over the first film and to get back to Tom's favorite uh, sequel, I agree with him. I, I love Blade Runner 2049. To the, and I don't even actually like the original all that much. I think of the original Ooh. as a film where we are focused on the wrong character. I just don't think Deckard is a very interesting character. And I, at the end, we finally meet someone interesting. He gives a great monologue and then the film is over. <laughs> so the great design of Blade Runner is amazing. It's, it visually is it's quite remarkable. But I think Blade Runner 2049, to me, is just much better. I think the story is more interesting. The central character is much more interesting. And yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Sort of. That's very interesting to hear because like Matthew, I don't really like Blade Runner that much. I've seen it probably two or three, maybe even four times over the years. I have no idea which cuts I've seen because <laughs> there's been so many different versions. One of them was the one with the voiceover or whatever, which is apparently the worst cut. But yeah, look, I've never really been into Blade Runner. When the sequel was announced, I noticed that, you know, uh, Dene Villeneuve, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, was the director behind it. And I've loved all of his other films, but just being a Blade Runner film, and then I'm like, well, maybe I should watch the original first. And I'm like, I can't be bothered watching the original for the fourth or fifth time. So I've never gotten around to the sequel, but it's really interesting to hear guys talk about it as being better than the original. So maybe I will check out the Blade Runner sequel one day. Oh, you really should, definitely. And uh, just, just just for information, it's Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, well, like any French pronunciation, Matthew always has to go to use that. I'll just add myself in on, on the fact that the Blade Runner sequel actually is more or less on par with the first one for me as well. And it's a completely different atmosphere. I think it's visually spectacular. Definitely uh, recommend it to anyone, even if they didn't love the first film. It's 
it, it takes in a diff slightly different direction as well. So de definitely something I'd, I'd recommend. Uh, and I, I have actually seen Mathieu's favorite sequel as well, Asterix and Cleopatra, or Mission Cleopatra, as, as they called it. Uh, because these films were massive in, in Norway when I was uh, growing up. And I probably saw all of the Asterix Noblex films uh, until I was like 12 at least. So big, it was a very big fan. I can't remember much of them now, but I was a huge, huge fan of, of the Asterix Noblex movies. Um, so yeah, just wanted to throw that out there, that it was not just confined to France. I'm very intrigued by the Asterix and Obelix movie, because when I was growing up, I used to read all of the comics, and I did actually have Asterix in Britain, the film, on VHS. That was a cartoon one, but I've never seen any of the live adaptation ones, so to hear you heap some praise on it like that, Matthew, I'm very intrigued to, to give it a whirl and, and see if it brings back happy memories of reading the cartoons when I was younger. I do want to stress that the second one is really the one worth watching. The live action, live action. There's also... Yeah, oh, the, it's a live action trial right, talking the, about animation films, never mind. <laughs> right, so there's also the animation films, which are really basically straight adaptations of the comic books. They don't really change much, uh, most of them. And they're pretty good. But no, I'm talking about the live action ones. Most of them are not great. The, the first one is kind of okay, the live action ones. But the second one is, is yeah, to me, to me, absolutely great. Okay, good to know. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the live action ones, I think, but I, I might give this a try then. And you don't need to see the first one, really. If you're familiar with Asterix and Obelix from the cartoons, uh, you can just watch the second one. Is it the same story as Asterix and Cleopatra, the animated one, or is it uh, a different... No, uh, no. no. I mean, that's kind of the basics, mm. uh, but, but it, it goes in kind of different ways. It differs a lot more than the, the animated adaptations. Very good. So, having talked a little bit about the sequels that we love so much, we think stand out as even better than the first film, why do you think sequels have gotten such a bad name for themselves? There's a lot of pressure that comes with making sequels, particularly if the original filmmakers aren't involved in the future projects. There can be a lot of anticipation for a follow-up film from the audiences. And again, that, that just kind of adds to the pressure. And I think that's one of the things that comes into play with audiences' expectations when they're getting a sequel, that there's going to be a feeling of disappointment that it can't live up to the original. And as you mentioned in the introduction, Chris, there's a lot of sequels that are just churned out for purposes of making money. And these don't consider the artistic side of, of putting forward such a project one thing that I think is a good example is, for instance, the Cloverfield franchise, where films that are not initially penned as Cloverfield projects just have the Cloverfield name attached to it, and a few extra sequences <laughs> filmed at a later stage to make the film appeal to a wider audience because it's got that name attached. <laughs> I mean, that was moderately successful with 10 Cloverfield Lane. That wasn't a bad film, but the Cloverfield yeah, was just a, an awful sci-fi film. If it didn't have the Cloverfield name on, it probably would have just languished at the bottom of Netflix's catalogue for a long time, hardly been seen by anyone. But because they put the Cloverfield name on it, they pushed it. It's that kind of betrayal. Audiences are coming to expect something great and they're not getting that. And I think this has been going on for, for quite some time in the history of films. So oh, yes. It, it hatches that stigma to the idea of a sequel. 
Well, this actually got me really thinking about uh, the earlier conversation about the Living Dead series and the return of the Living Dead, which is more of an unofficial uh, entry, because obviously the Italians did this as well. Obviously, there was Zombie 2 and Zombie 3 from Lucio Fulci, which just uh, were created essentially as sequels to nothing. Like they were meant to be sequels to the Living <laughs> That's the series. But it's, I mean, it's just, like the first film, it doesn't exist. It's Zombie 2, Zombie 3. <laughs> so I think that's, that's probably just the most known example. If I recall correctly, there are others as well that kind of just pretend that they're sequels to popular American films. It's very interesting to hear Tom bring up the example of 10 Cloverfield Lane because I know it's got the word Cloverfield in the title, but until I was reading up reviews of the film after watching it, I didn't realise that it was a sequel to Cloverfield, and I didn't see Cloverfield until, I don't know, a year or a couple of years later. I actually prefer 10 Cloverfield Lane. Uh, I just really love the whole premise of being inside the bunker, not knowing whether or not something's really going on outside. And I think the trailer caught me or the uh, TV spot or whatever it was. And yeah, as soon as I was on DVD, I was watching it. But I yeah, had no idea that it was a sequel. But yeah, that sort of marketing is interesting because I was also thinking of the Unfriended films. I almost, or my sequel that's the best, or better than the original, I was almost going to bring out Unfriended Dark Web. But the thing is that it's not a sequel to Unfriended. It doesn't even have the same supernatural concept. The only concept that's the same is the whole idea of seeing one computer screen. But, you know, movies like Searching and The Den or whatever have done that also. So it's not the only film to get that. But, yeah, the whole thing was marketed on the Unfriended name which is a bit of a shame because I know there's a lot of people, including Chris, when I was talking about films that were my best for 2018, saying that, you know, he's never going to watch Unfriended Dark Web. And I guess a lot of people associate Unfriended Dark Web with the original Unfriended, but it's not a supernatural horror film. It's a more down-to-earth horror film. Getting back to the topic on hand, like Tom was saying, I think money does play a role there. I think why sequels have such a bad name is that because of the money attached to it and the fact that there's so much investment and it has to pay off, I think because of that, we have a situation where a lot of filmmakers are just trying to up the ante the whole time and they're not actually thinking about generating an interesting storyline. So with most sequels out there, they either try and outdo the original or they try and remake and copy the original, whereas the best sequels out there try and do something different. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I'll just add quickly some praise to 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I also really like, and also saw without seeing Cloverfield. I still haven't seen Cloverfield, actually, although I probably should at some point. No, you shouldn't. Don't tell Lauren that, but um, I don't really like Cloverfield, but I hate <laughs> found footage films, so that's why. But anyway, carry on. Uh, but I think it's interesting that like the two sequels that I chose are both very different from their original. And you mentioned the same thing. You mentioned so that you think that the best sequels are the ones that are really different from the original. But in a sense, that's kind of cheating. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I agree to a point, but in some ways, I, I like Tom's answer better because I, because I think Blade Runner 2049 is a great film that manages to really be the sequel. It really is in the spirit of the original film, in the same tone, in the same kind of visual universe. And I think that's very difficult to do. And you, you, you asked, Chris, why people hate sequels. Obviously, the commercial aspect has something to do with it, right? People see sequels and franchises in general as being barely hidden, uh, just cash cows. But it's also just because it's very difficult to do the same thing better. It's kind of easier to go in a different direction. 
you can someone alienate the original fans. So I guess there's a high difficulty, high degree of difficulty to making a sequel, I guess is, is my answer. But I think the best sequels do carry on the same characters and same storyline, but like something like Scream 2 takes it in a completely different direction. I think that's quite beautifully put, and it's uh, often the case, and it's to add to 10 Cloverfield Lane. I think that's one of where just like, so even while watching it, wondering, is this actually a sequel? Is, <laughs> is it real? Is it real because it has Cloverfield in the name? Is that a spoiler already? And I never really cared too much for a Cloverfield franchise, if you will. I didn't really know. I will say that it has much better acting and production values than the first, even though the original Cloverfield is quite a good uh, fan footage film in my opinion though i haven't seen it since it came out J- jumping on to my next question which perhaps goes a little bit more uh, personal when you hear that the film you love that you personally love is getting a sequel uh, what is your reaction i'm usually very dubious as we'll come to discuss in the podcast, the number of great sequels is massively outweighed by the number of bad sequels. So judging by those odds, I'm always unsure if the sequels are going to leave a bad taste in the mouth and just wipe out what was great about the original. Sometimes, depending on who is involved in making the sequel, and maybe a little more open to it and a little more excited about it, like with Blade Runner 2049, because Denis Villeneuve, I love all of his previous work. So I was excited about that because of who was involved. But yeah, usually I'm sitting on the dubious side if there's a, a sequel being made to a film that I love. Generally speaking, unlike Tom, I actually get quite excited when a sequel's made to a film that I love. I don't go into it expecting it to be better, but like Tom said, if the same people are involved in it, especially the same cast members, so they can carry on those character arcs or those character progressions, uh, yeah, I get ex- I get very excited for it. Um, you know, I loved uh, Ocean's 13 when it came out, and I couldn't wait for Ocean's 14, and of course that never eventuated, and Ocean's 8 comes out, and you know, I really want Ocean's 9 to come out, but I don't know if it will because... Ocean's 8 wasn't the big runaway success they were all expecting, but it's probably more with comedy series like the Ocean's films or more light-hearted ones. Uh, things like the Hangover films, if a sequel was made in that, I go, oh, that could be really interesting, especially if they retain most of the original cast. But I'd say probably more so with maybe dramas and maybe older, more classic films. I get a bit more cautious or a bit more dubious, like Tom said, if a sequel's coming out. Look, in general, I don't expect to take away my enjoyment. I am definitely very dubious about this Scream 5 that's coming out. It is going to have the original cast members back, which is uh, excellent because the way they progress over this first four films is absolutely beautiful. I'd love to see them continue to progress. But the directors behind it made Ready or Not, which isn't a particularly, in my opinion, great horror film and I'm going to like, well, what are they going to do with the Screams franchise? But it's not going to destroy my enjoyment of the original four films that Wes Craven did. So I don't know if I'll see it the first week it comes out, but I definitely will see Scream 5. So I guess a little bit of dubiousness, but I guess also I just get really excited because there's always this possibility it's going to take things further, especially when a film's got really great characters and has done really great things with previous entries in the series. 
I generally try to keep my expectations in check. I try very hard not to have expectations for films that are announced because I, I don't want to be disappointed, I guess, and it's often unreasonable to have expectations. But I guess a recent example would be uh, Knives Out, which was a film I loved, and I was quite happy to learn that there was a sequel. But maybe part of it is because it's kind of very open-ended, right? A sequel is just one character in common, in this case. I think I'm maybe a little more skeptical when it's really a continuation of the story, especially if I think the story was fine as it was. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to that sequel also. So yeah, I guess I try to be neutral. <laughs> I can't always be neutral, but <laughs> I try to be neutral. I try not to put too much of a burden on the film that's coming out, because I think it's often unfair the way people react to sequels. That's a good point about the continuation of Knives Out, because if it is just focusing on the one character rather than a continuation of a story that is kind of contained in the first film, then it opens up a lot of potential and a lot of possibilities for where the story can go. So it's not just an extension of the storyline that has been tagged on after the first film was successful. It's potentially another self-contained storyline, but with the similar characters. And I'd be more open and interested about that because, again, it, you know, the possibilities there are, are much more promising. I think I'm more in uh, line with Mathieu here in that I try to be neutral. I'm not sure can be neutral, but I think my reaction to sequels are very much in my reaction to new films, which is that I look at the directors, I look at the actors, I look at the bus, I look at the idea behind it. And if that jives and if that looks to be good, I'll probably get excited. If it doesn't, I might not even watch it. I mean, if it's a film I love and it's a completely different director, different cast is just really clear cash in i probably won't watch it at all and i'm usually not tied to a franchise so for instance even if i would like the first film or the second film and even the third film I, I might not continue if something disrupts it for instance i still haven't seen alien covenant and i have no real interest in, in doing so i think it's really just up to the film itself though if i were to really want to see some standout sequel later, I would probably force myself to watch everything leading up to that point. Though, again, it really depends on what type of sequel it is. One thing I'd add, actually, about why sequels are disliked is often people mention that it diminishes the original film for them when the sequel is not as good. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that sequels, often they try to take the best elements of the original and capitalize on that by doing it a lot. And that's often a mistake because some things work better in small doses. And I guess that's one additional difficulty of making good sequels. It's knowing to take the best elements without overdoing them. Again, just high degree of difficulty and so and people get very angry <laughs> when they don't work. <laughs> uh, on, on the topic of just taking some elements and uh, working on them, this really reminded me of a uh, French trilogy where the last film is actually my favorite, starting with The Spanish Apartment and leading all the way to Chinese Puzzle in 2013. So uh, going over a bit of a decade and following kind of the same characters over these three films. But I think this is one of those cases where you have uh, the first film, which is kind of, it, it's by Cedric uh, Klapich. And Klapich. Klapich, yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, uh, playful. It's fast. It's just trying to be as fast as possible with movements, trying to be a little bit clever with, with the camera. But it's really just, you know, another young adult slash teen comedy it's fun it's good and it made me see the sequel as well but neither of those films really stand out as spectacular or great however 
in the last film uh, in the trilogy, Sandy's Puzzle, when the characters are well into their 30s rather than early 20s and they have children and they have real lives and you have some of the same elements in playing with the speed and playing with the narrator uh, etc and having some fun with it but it just feels more adult the uh, emotions uh, feel more real it keeps the element that really worked in the first one it actually made it better in, in the last one because it's just not thrown in at uh, almost at random just to be fun but it actually adds something to the personalities and adds something to the storytelling so I think that's one of the few times for me at least that you know elements that worked in the first one but weren't great were uh, done a lot better in, in a sequel. Well, that's interesting Chris because L'Auberge Espagnol, the, the first one in this trilogy, was a big favorite of mine when I was a teenager and I watched the second one and wasn't that impressed and never yeah, watched the second the one, one. Is a mess. Yeah and I never watched the third one because of that and recently I revisited the original and thought it was okay but not that great mm. so yeah, I guess I had kind of given up on that but maybe I will watch the third one at one point now because yeah I, I hadn't heard that it was notably different or better. I mean, it takes the same elements, but it's essentially more adult. The characters feel a little bit more real and contains kind of the fun and play. So I think it just took the best elements, made them work in a slightly different way. That, that's that's what I can say, say for it without really getting into it. I mean, it has the same, like I said, it has most of the same characters. It has the same kind of will they or won't they, who ends up with who, all, all of that stuff. But for me, it worked better than the two previous, at least. And I guess I should have picked up on this earlier, but it was mentioned that sequels can harm the film that came before, as in generally hurt your impression of it. Has this ever happened? Do you ever seen a sequel to a film you loved and for some reason it changed something so tremendously that your appreciation for the first decreased? Absolutely never. I have a hard time understanding why that would be the case for anyone. Different films are the different entities and if I didn't like the sequel when I rewatched the original, I just wouldn't rewatch the sequel afterwards. So no, it's never happened to me. Yeah, it's not something that's happened to me either. You know, you're able to, to separate these films in your mind, the separate entities. So I've never had that disappointment weigh in on on my thoughts about the original. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think they're different films. I don't know. I mean... <laughs> it, it, it can't hurt the original film if the film is bad. Maybe it's the no. other way around, actually. Maybe if the second film is better, then the first film looks kind of less good in comparison. <laughs> maybe, but I can't think of an example anyway. I can't think of an example either, and no really affected me because I do see them as different films. And I've been trying to think of why this would be. I suppose maybe if the second or third film changes something in the story or changes who a character is, maybe if they make a character everybody loved into a killer or someone evil, or it, it, it goes back and it changes who did something, maybe it would change how we see them. But yeah, I can't really think of a good reason. Perhaps it simply is that they see sequels almost like some people view TV shows, in that if something really stupid happened in one of them, it kind of diminishes the whole series. But you know, I, I can't really speak for, for this demographic of people who say a film destroyed their childhood. That said, and on that idea of sequels as series and obviously franchises, which is all around us now, if you love or you know have a strong interest in a franchise do you go out of your way to see every single film within that franchise i would say that i do yes a great example of this would be the alien franchise that you mentioned earlier chris because you've not seen alien covenant 
and I know that the quality of the f- later films doesn't live up to the originals, but I'm so invested in the franchise and where it's going that I just can't wait to see what, what happens next, basically, regardless of who's involved, whether it's more of a, a spin-off than a continuation of the storyline, like in Prometheus. I just think it's a wonderful universe, and the storyline really appeals to me. So I'm excited to see where it goes next. I think for me it would vary from franchise to franchise. If I'm really enjoying the franchise, then yeah, I'll seek them all out. If quality drops, I usually wouldn't. Although lately I've found out with my letterbox stats that it tells me if I've got a completed collection. I was recently watching the X-Men films, which sort of peak in 2014 with Days of Future Past. Uh, The ones beyond that were really crap. And I'm thinking now, why did I bother watching them? And I'm looking through my letterbox stats and it says, like, complete the X-Men collection. I'm going, yes, I I watched Dark Phoenix (laughs) for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah, I know. It's funny that you mentioned that because I grew up loving the X-Men franchise. It came along at the right time for me, age-wise, you know, as a teenager when the first few came out. And I was watching all of the films, but I haven't seen Dark Phoenix because, like you said, the quality drops off and I did just eventually lose interest. So it shows that even a franchise that you grow up loving can distance itself from some members of the audience if the quality continues to drop like that. And I think the funny thing here is that in the X-Men franchise, I, I completely agree with Saul that, you know, the quality topped itself in 2014 with Days of Future Past and kind of again with Logan in 2017. And I had seen all of these films up until that point, but I never cared to see Dark Phoenix because of the views it got and the general impression that, that was coming out from everyone seeing it. So I think that shows just how quickly I will just drop a series or a franchise. But did you see Apocalypse, Chris? Because that one is also terrible. It is, yes. <laughs> I saw Apocalypse yeah. and I guess that helped. I think that helped my decision yeah, yeah. to not, not continue. <laughs> I saw Apocalypse oh, and I'm like, Phoenix can't be worse than this. And <laughs> <it> was. <laughs> I'm glad I haven't seen Phoenix now. Because <laughs> I didn't like Apocalypse either. Yeah, I saw Apocalypse and that was enough to convince me not to watch Dark Phoenix. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> And it's such a sad thing, too, because like this is a franchise that really managed to pick itself up. I mean, they already went into the abyss. Uh, like They already sell, almost self-destroyed themselves, especially, I think, with the same storyline, almost, in, in you know, the third X-Men film. So it's just weird that they wanted to repeat their own failures. Uh, just to get back to the question about wanting to complete franchises or not, I definitely get uh, Soul's satisfaction at, you know, the completionist satisfaction of, oh, uh, I've seen it all, even if it comes in the form of, you know, a letterboxed bunch of pixels. And, and sometimes I do that. I also think it's kind of interesting to just culturally kind of uh, to see a whole franchise. Like over the past year, I've been very slowly working my way through the James Bond films. And I'm up to halfway through Roger Moore, so I'm not that. I'm basically halfway through, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, there are a lot of films in there that I don't like, but I think it will be satisfying to have seen them all. But I also don't really do it all the time, uh, watching all the films in a franchise. We mentioned the X Men. I know the Hobbits. I've seen the first one. That was enough for me. So it really depends <laughs> on how interested I am in having that satisfaction of having seen it all. 
Look, I'm not really that big in dissatisfaction. It was sort of like there was a sci-fi challenge going on on the ICM forum, and I had most of the films already in my collection as ex-rentals or whatever over, over the years, and they're all official checks because you're on the box office list, so I'm like, it's something I need to do eventually. <laughs> but um, generally, no, I'm not much of a completist. I mean, uh, I've found that even with awards on, on I check movies, I don't have any platinum awards, so I've never been much of a completist. It was just with this X-Men franchise i'm like i'm gonna get through this but no in general no unless i'm really loving the franchise or whatever then, then i would but i guess with some of the horror ones like the scream I already mentioned or nightmare on elm street i've seen all of them but with things like alien if really scott does another one after covenant i'm not going to see it i see it gets really good reviews i'm not going to see it because that series has gone so far downhill well i guess oh, yes. back on, on alien I, I think alien is a kind of interesting franchise in that way in the sense that all of the films are quite different at least as far as i understand because i only have seen the first two ones but the first two are quite different right the first one being a horror film and the second one more of an action film and it brings to mind to me one of the better sequels overall which is terminator 2 which does the same thing right with the first terminator being horror and the second one being action and similarly i have never felt compelled to watch any other terminator film but for good reason as well i mean i have and you don't have to you really shouldn't <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I really like Genesis. It seemed to get slammed so much when Dark Fate came out. Everybody was like, oh, we hated Genesis. James Cameron hated Genesis or whatever. I've seen Genesis a couple of times and it's just really clever. It's like Back to the Future Part 2 where they go and they try and like intercept the original timeline that we saw in the first Terminator film. I don't know. It's not a great, great film, but Genesis is definitely, for me, the best of the Terminator sequels after T1 and T2. No, right. I mean, that's actually the one this. I haven't seen, so... I would say this. If you say it's like Back to the Future Part 2, that's not a great argument for me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm a, I'm a bad three. <laughs> really? Wow. Okay, that was definitely the weakest one for me. You know what? The, the hottest take I have is that uh, it's actually my favorite of the whole trilogy, but we, we maybe don't have to. Ooh, okay. <laughs> well, that has to come up in this episode. It has to, so tell us. Tell us right now. What is it that makes the um, third Back to the Future uh, film well, the best? I, I think it partly comes down to the fact that I really hate the ending of the first Back to the Future one. I think the ending is really this, his, um, basically the main character, he gets a car and that's his big victory. That's kind of ugly to me. <laughs> that's a, like very crass, very 80s, very Reagan era America. And I really don't like that. I, I like the film overall, but to me, it really diminishes, diminishes the film. I don't like the second one because it's kind of a mess to me and the way some of the characters are treated really is a problem for me. And the third one, I get why people don't like it as much, but it's very much more focused on characters. It's more laid back. And I guess I really like that vibe. And I like Westerns. It's kind of a fun adventure in a Western. I understand why people don't like it because like it as much because it's kind of slight, but it's the one, yeah, it's the one I enjoy the most by far because of those reasons. I like all three of the Back to the Future films and I think you hit the nail on the head with why the, the last one is such a good film. But I, I do find it interesting. I never expected you to say it, it was down to, to the ending. That's a very interesting take. To be clear, I, I, I do like the first. It's, you know, it has a bunch of things going for it. It's very funny, but the ending does diminish it. And I think looking at franchises in general, what type of films is it in the franchises that usually stand out to you 
as the best uh, because at least to me i mean franchises are a really weird phenomenon now which are kind of like shows but not really and as you all know in tv shows uh, the first one is rarely the best and i think that's also quite clear in these franchises the first films in these franchises are often just created to set something up or to be a building stone there are exceptions of course i suppose iron man was both meant to be a test and a standalone film if the test didn't work but what what is your favorite film from like let's say the marvel franchise and why my favorite film from the mcu would be the avengers first one i guess it's interesting you, you bring up tv and uh, the the marvel the, the mcu is really an interesting kind of experiment in something that is between tv and cinema and i think it's interesting because it's obviously something that's happening more and more and are those films even sequels to each other? It, it, it's kind of a whole kind of worms to open, right? <laughs> it, it, is Avengers Endgame the 17th sequel to Iron Man? I mean, it doesn't really feel that way. Or is it the third sequel to the Avengers? We're getting to a point where the definition of what a sequel is, is, is kind of changing because of those films and because of those massive universes. Yeah, it's true, it's true. It's I mean... Sorry, but to answer to your original question about them generally getting worse over time, franchises, I actually really like Avengers Endgame. It would be my second favorite, I think, in the whole. And it does have those quality of TV. You mentioned in TV, the first episode is not the best. And Avengers Endgame really has that quality of, of a season finale or a series finale, really building up to everything that's gone before. And so that's what makes it emotionally satisfying. So it has that advantage of the franchise. I think it's it's really fascinating. And the MCU has a bunch of problems and it's not that creative in, in many ways, but it's also, I think, just a very fascinating thing to follow. I'm more of a passive Marvel fan. So for me, my favorite film of the franchise is Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. And that's because you don't really need any idea of the, the characters before you go in. Lots of the other films, there's crossovers and... If you miss one of the films, some of the things won't make as much sense for you. And it sounds really bad that I'm panning the franchise for that because that is essentially what the fans want and the fans <laughs> love. Um, but that's why it didn't necessarily work for me because I got kind of fed up of seeing all these superhero films that felt a bit samey, lost interest in them. And that made it difficult to re-enter the franchise at, at a later point without seeing them. Whereas Garden to the Galaxy, you could go into that and it's just a great ride, whether you know anything about the Marvel characters or not. When Chris first asked this question, because it wasn't planned beforehand, the thing that was going through my head was, what makes you think that we watch Marvel Universe films? Um, <laughs> I did back online, and I have seen some of them. So I've seen the two Guardian of the Galaxy films, and I've seen the Iron Man trilogy, but the only reason why I've seen the Iron Man films is because I like Robert Downey Jr. as an actor. Of those, I think I like the third Iron Man film the most out of the Iron oh, really? Mans, but yeah, part two was terrible. So I guess anything <laughs> after, and I watched them quite close to each other, so anything after Iron Man 2 was going to be better. So, uh, But look, uh, overall, like Tom, uh, I did find Guardians of the Galaxy the most enjoyable. It was a comedy. It didn't matter that I didn't know anything else going on in the Marvel's universe. But yeah, look, I hate superhero films. I don't know if I've said that before in one of the podcasts, but yeah, I've never been big into superhero movies, unless there's something that puts a bit of a unique spin on it. But yeah, generic superhero films aren't for me. And if I ever get a silver on the box office list on iCheck Movies, it will be through somehow avoiding all those countless superhero films out there. Because yeah, in general, I can't stand them. 
Yeah, I'd call that the hard mode. Oh, yeah, well, there's a lot of lame animated comedies you have to sit through instead, but I prefer those to those like <laughs> hero films. Fair oh. enough. Now, I, I don't actually mind the, the Marvel films. I think most of the early ones are actually not that good or special. I think that's probably something that's going to be one of the more controversial uh, claims there, but like, I don't think the Iron Man trilogy is particularly good. I think the third one is abysmal, actually. I think it's a bit of a joke. And the first, the Hulk is just awful, but somehow I saw them, and somehow I continued watching them, and I do think that I, I will agree that Avengers somehow managed to bring them together and work and work better than everything that came before. And that's really impressive. And adding to what I think Matthias said earlier, they do have the advantage of feeling like uh, season finales or conclusions. So that is something that does make uh, the Avengers film stand out a little bit more, even though the second Avengers film was also quite poor and uh, unlike some of you i'm not a big fan of endgame either but uh, i think the films that really stood out for me or at least the film that really stood out for me uh, as unique and different and better than what came before in its series was poor ragnarok because i didn't like poor particularly much and poor 2 I, I thought was quite terrible i thought it was the one superhero they just couldn't manage because they played him both the joke too seriously at the same time it didn't work at all it was the dullest hero in the franchise barring the original hulk but with thor ragnarok the main storyline is awful and there's a war going on and all of this stuff that i i completely forget about every single time i think about this film because what this film does is that it takes this bizarre side turn where they end up in this gladiator-style alien planet where it's Thor and the Hulk, and they're fighting it out. It's bizarre, and it's colorful, and it's playful and creative, and uh, I, I think it just shows how good these films could be if they didn't take themselves that seriously and went uh, on a bit more of a crazy rampage, at least that's my opinion. I think what's interesting is that in that whole franchise, there are so many films that we kind of get examples of a bunch of different sequels and different ways sequels can be good or bad. But you mentioned Thor Ragnarok, which is a big change in tone compared to the previous films. Uh, Winter Soldier would be another example of a film that really goes for a 70s spy feel as opposed to the yeah. previous one, which was more of a war film. And you, you guys mentioned Guardians of the Galaxy, which makes sense that you guys like it the most when you're not a fan of the franchise, because yeah, it, it's standalone. I, I do agree that in terms of standalone films in that franchise, it's probably the best. So yeah, it's kind of a microcosm of the different ways you can do sequels, because there are just so many. On that note, then, on, on, and on the point of just big jumps in sequels like mine, where you know we go from the poor early Thor films into Thor Ragnarok, what do you think is the biggest quality jump, or more specifically, biggest positive quality jump between an original and a sequel? That is a sequel that's actually much, much better than the first film. This is quite a difficult question to ask, because generally, if I don't like the first film in a series, I'm unlikely to check out any <laughs> sequels that come after it. One example I do have, though, is the Dead Snow series of films. Now, the first one was put on the map because it's kind of an interesting take on the zombie genre, the snowy setting, the Nazi zombies. You know, it brings us something new that horror fans perhaps haven't seen before. I didn't think it quite hit the mark of what it was going for. It was kind of not sure whether it was going to be an all-out comedy 
because it's still focusing on some horror elements and it didn't blend the horror and comedy together too well in my opinion i had no inclination to watch the sequel there was at a horror film festival and dead snow 2 was on it was either that or go home so i thought i'll, I'll give it a chance i'll watch it i've got a ticket why not and i absolutely loved it it was an all-out comedy and it was so much fun and it just worked incredibly well so that's an example of a sequel that really ramps up the quality between the, the first and the second I do agree that the second Dead Snow film is a better film than the first film, but for me the quality jump wasn't that big because I liked the first film and then I thought the second film was actually very good. Uh, in terms of big quality jumps, the biggest I could think for me would be Pink Panther, the original Blake Edwards film, and A Shot in the Dark, which is the sequel that Blake Edwards made a year afterwards. And the original Pink Panther, a lot of people forget this, Peter Sellers is actually not the main character. The main character is David Niven, and Peter Sellers just pops up here and there. A lot of like manic stuff going around in it, but yeah, it's not a particularly funny film. One or two sequences aside, it's not particularly funny until the end. And then A Shot in the Dark comes along. Peter Sellers is the main character in there. Herbert Lom finally gets a whole lot of screen time, as is aggravated boss. And Herbert Lom actually follows Peter Sellers throughout most of the pig pad, the films beyond that. So really great setup introducing in there. Got some great supporting cast members like Brian Forbes in there. And yeah, it's just a terrific film, totally centered on Peter Sellers. And just some of the small things like accidentally sucking the ink up his own pen that he does in A Shot in the Dark is just incredibly funny. And it just flows so well compared to the first Pink Panther film. I've rewatched them on rewatch. I didn't dislike the first Pink Panther that much. I thought it was okay. But the second film for me is really high quality. I actually think Blake Edwards was a better director at drama than comedy. But in terms of Blake Edwards' comedies, A Shot in the Dark is probably my favorite comedy that he ever made. Well, for me, my answer has already been covered because it would be Blade Runner 2049 for the reasons I explained before. But I guess another one I'm thinking of would be the third Harry Potter film, Prisoner of Azkaban. I don't really like the first two. They're very much children's films in which it can be fine, but in this case, it's you know not, not in a good way. And Prisoner of Azkaban is Alfonso Cuarón. It has a very different visual identity. The story is quite good. I think it, it really takes kids' film and makes, makes it more like a teenager story, which I guess allows for a little more emotional uh, heft and complexity. Still great, great entertainment, but it's, it's also really that director change that really brings, Cuarón really brings a visual identity to the franchise, which I think makes it the best of the whole franchise and really a big jump compared to the second one. I do agree entirely on the third Harry Potter film. It just set at a dark tone for the series that the subsequent Harry Potter films followed and tried to copy. And I think I only got to the fifth Harry Potter film and then I gave up on them because I was just copying what Quaron did with the third film. But yeah, Prisoner of Azkaban has the distinction of probably being outside of Little Princess. The third Harry Potter film is probably the only Quaron film that hasn't disappointed me. A lot of his other films, when I've sat down to them, whether it's be Children of Men or Gravity or even Itumama Tambiana, watching them just like, what's the big deal? Whereas with the Harry Potter film, I'm like, well, this actually is really much better than what the series has delivered so far. 
well, we'll have to do a dystopian podcast at some point to discuss children of men because you're just wrong. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> we probably should do because well, the thing I'd say going into that is children of men would have been better if this film called Zero Population Growth from 1970 who didn't exist, but children of men just basically copies it and doesn't do a very good job of it, in my humble opinion. Not so humble opinion. <laughs> nice. uh, yeah, maybe for a future podcast. Nice with the obscure reference to shame me. <laughs> well done. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and and to give my answer, I think I, I've already more or less given it as In the Mood for Love being a pretty big jump from Days of Being Wild, Poor Honey Rock being a massive jump from the first tour, so that might be my top pick. But as we've been crossing over all of these different topics, I'm sure there's lots of other sequels that are better than the originals that we've kind of just had left and didn't get to. So what are some other sequels you think are better than the original? I think it's only fair that we discuss the Mad Max series at some point. Now, the first Mad Max is great at establishing the world that the character lives in and setting up what is to come. But the sequels take it to a completely new place. The Road Warrior is just a fantastic film. It's excellent. I'm not so sure about Thunderdome. I enjoyed it, but, you know. And then Fury Road that just came years later was excellent and might even be the high point of the whole series for me. I quite agree with Mad Max. I even would say that every Mad Max film is better than the previous one because I Ooh. personally like... Ooh, uh, yeah. personally like... <laughs> Wait, Thunderdome? Yeah, I... <laughs> I happen to like Thunderdome a lot. Yeah, I, I think the best thing about the Mad Max movies is the world building. Uh, that's what they do best. And I think Beyond Thunderdome really goes far into that. And I think that's great. And obviously Fury Road is, is on another level, I, I, I would say. I completely agree with the Mad Max films and that Mad Max 2 Road Warrior it really is the best one there. And it almost feels like the beginning of the franchise in a way, too, if, if you can call it that, because... The first one is far closer to our world. I mean, it's, it's essentially just it, almost as if it's ending right and there. Everything looks more or less a, as normal. And it does, doesn't have the vibe or the atmosphere or, or the type of world that uh, Road Warrior and the uh, later films have. And I think it, it's harmed for that. I mean, and this, this might be one of those films that also looks slightly worse due to just how much better the sequel is too, which we should talk about earlier. But uh, yeah, I really think The Road Warrior took essentially everything good about the first Mad Max, which was more or less an average wrench story in many ways, and just turned it into something completely different and set up a really memorable franchise because of it. I would agree that the second one really sets up the post-apocalyptic thing. It was kind of present in the first one, but, but not as much. And then the third and the fourth just build on that. One that I can't believe we haven't mentioned yet would be The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the most famous sequel of all time, kind of. And it does a thing that many sequels try to do, which is to go a little darker, right? And I think in, in this case, at least, it works quite well. And I think also it visually has a leg up on the original film, definitely. So that would be one. Another one for me, uh, to continue with the hot takes, <laughs> would be uh, actually like Halloween 2 better than Halloween, because I'm not a big fan of Halloween, weirdly, even though I like John Carpenter overall. And Halloween 2 is not great, but it, it works fine. To me, it's the best of the franchise of those, of those I've seen anyway. It's just a small-scale horror film in confined space, the, the hospital. 
and it doesn't try to be much more than that, and it, it works quite well as such. But yeah, it's tied to the fact that I'm not a huge fan of the original. And just uh, the last one I would mention would be Before Sunset. You mentioned earlier, Chris, the, the Clapiche series, right? the Spanish Apartment and the sequels. And the Before series are kind of the same thing, right? With the, the same actors over long periods of time. I, l- I like Before Sunrise a lot, but I think Before Sunset is uh, on another level. I guess the weight of the fact that you've seen the first film really gives a depth to the relationship between those two people. And Ligator does great with dialogue, as always. I'm glad that you brought up the Before trilogy. I actually think that Before Sunrise is the best of the whole trilogy and the sequels don't quite meet mm. that uh, level of quality. But I think the sequels are still great films in their own right. And the reason behind that is that it's the same artistic team and they've given time between the films to enable the story to be developed. They're not just being films that have been rushed out for the sake of it. Sequels that are just desperate to, to grab cash. It's because filmmakers behind them really want to tell this story and want it done right. And I think that's a, a great example of, of sequels that work really well. I agree completely with that, Tom. And I think I disagree with one part of it that you say that the first one is, is the best. I actually think the, the third one before Midnight is the, is the very best in the trilogy, but they're more or less on the same quality line for me. They're more or less equally spectacular. And I think what makes this really stand out and different from so many other sequels is just what we talked about there, Tom, with that you can see that's the clear intent and also the fact that th- there's this urge to return to these characters and, and even built in from the second film onwards this idea that we're going to see them again after a set amount of time we're going to see how their life developed we're going to see how that relationship has gone and, and then just hear them talk hear them have those conversations and every single time it, it's done differently we used to say that the the relationship has changed in such a way that the topics they talk about change the way they reveal their own characters and their own development uh, is different. Their tone is, is different, even though they're still so similar as well. So I really think that this is one of the more beautiful trilogies uh, ever created. And while it's really hard to say which one is really the best, I do this for now, at least, I think before it's before midnight. But for me, these films are essentially all on par as really great, wonderful films. Before I talk about some of the other sequels that I consider to be better than the original, or just react to some of the stuff that's been brought up already. So, yeah, Mad Max films, yeah, we seem to be doing all of my pet hates in this podcast, but, you know, I've never really liked post apocalyptic <laughs> films. I've never really liked the whole, whole post apocalyptic vibe. The Mad Max 2 didn't really do a lot for me. The first three Mad Max films I have on about the same level. I think I preferred the first slightly, but I also do like the third most than more people. The whole Feral Children, as Matthew was saying, it does actually build upon and expand the Mad Max universe, which is really nice. And also you've got that classic Tina Turner song, We Don't Need Another Hero. It's just an amazing theme song for the film. But yeah, the fourth Mad Max film, even though I didn't love it, I do have to agree is the best of them. With Empire Strikes Back, I did re-watch the first six films, I don't know, a few years ago. I did actually like New Hope better than Empire, although I can't remember why I found. My favourite Star Wars film, though, is Episode 3, Avenger of Tiff love the way that it builds everything up for a new hope it's just an amazing really dark film and with the halloween ones i'm probably on the same page as matthew i 
don't really like the original John Carpenter film that much. His music score is amazing. Maybe the best horror music score of all time, but the actual story is pretty threadbare and the characters aren't really that well developed, especially compared to what Rob Zombie did with his version in 2007. But I don't like the second film better than the first, though, so I don't really agree with Matthew on that. But I do love Halloween 3, but then again, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch like Unfriended Dark Web isn't really a sequel. It's a story of its own that was meant to be set in the same sort of universe and then never really happened. Of the Halloween sequels, Resurrection's pretty interesting. So that one's got a whole like videoing element in there. But yeah, the Halloween franchise in general, not that great. Much prefer Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th for series. But I won't get into that at the moment. Getting back to the subject, the sequels that I think were better than the original, I'll try not to go on for this for too long. I think Bride of Chucky is the best of the Child's Play films. As somebody was saying before, one of the best things a sequel could do is take the material in different direction and play it as comedy. And that's what it does. The first Child's Play film is just such a serious drama. What is a really silly story? And the third film, the Bride of the Chucky film, really plays up that silliness. The second film does it to a bit, and then the uh, Bride of Chucky just completely, the whole thing's a comedy, which I think is brilliant. I really like Borat's subsequent movie film more than the original Borat, which I've seen a couple of times. Original Borat is just so focused on the original character's own prejudices that doesn't get that much into the headspace of everybody else's prejudices. Borat's subsequent movie film, we've actually got Borat's daughter who actually overtakes him and outshines him in every single scene that she's in. It's a completely different vibe, and it's actually very relevant to what's going on at the moment with COVID-19 and everything. So I just love that, and I thought they did a much better job in the first Borat film. I have to mention, because we talked about trilogies where each one gets better, Bon Encleur and Playtime. I prefer Mon Encleur to Playtime, but both of those, I think, are far superior films to the original Mr. Hulot's Holiday. They play with technology much more. They're a lot funnier. The way that Tutty frames different things and Mon Encleur creates most of the jokes there. So, yeah, I just absolutely love that film. I might just mention a few more, but I'm not going to get into them in depth. Preferred Born Supremacy to the first Born film. Human Centipede 2 and 3 did much more dynamic things than the first one. I put Terminator 2 in there, even though I do love the first Terminator. Leprechaun 3 is another horror film where they take it in a comedy direction. It works perfectly. Ocean's 13, again, I love the original Ocean's 11. Ocean's 13, though, better stakes than ever, better super saturated colours than ever. So I absolutely love the better performances than ever. Grease 2, I did like more than the original Grease, but it's a bit more controversial. I guess for controversial, you could also put in Poltergeist 3. I just love the world building of that more than the original Poltergeist. Happy Death Day to You, again, takes a horror premise. It does so much more different things, but it completely builds up with the world of it. Adam's Family Values with the Wednesday Adams character just fleshes that out, everything. And look, I could keep going on, but I think there's just tons of uh, sequels. Die Hard with a Vengeance, Creep 2, that just do amazing things beyond what the original film does. Uh, that was quite a list, so I think you can see that there are a lot of sequels. 
that can be better uh, than uh, the original. I'm gonna I think one of the ones that stand out uh, the most to me from a series I think none of you have seen, which is Matthew Barney's Cremaster uh, Cycle. And the best film in that series, to me at least, is Cremaster 2, which is. Uh, not the second film in the series, it's the fourth film in the series, because it starts with Cream Master 4, then Cream Master 1, then Cream Master 5, before we then get to Cream Master 2, and ultimately Cream Master 3. <laughs> but uh, this is really a bizarre, surrealistic video art project by Matthew Barney, which goes into really bizarre set pieces. The first two in particular are quite low budget, though they're, they're visually unique, spectacular, stunning. I think that in Cream Master 2 is the first one which is much longer. The other ones were all around an hour, and it has these absolutely spectacular, visually gorgeous set pieces, which you know will go on for 10, 20 minutes each. These stunding sequences with, with like, I'm not even sure if I can get into it, but the visual atmosphere, the world building, the type of unique characters he creates, it's just gorgeous to look at, and Master 2 really, really delivers there. For a far more conventional pick, I'm going to actually go all the way back to 1924 with Kremhild's Revenge, the sequel to Dan Ibelung. I mean, these were released back to back, essentially. First one focusing on Siegfried and the second one on his wife taking, well, revenge. And I think the, the reason why this Kremhild's Revenge is so much stronger to me is that the first one well, well great uh, and it looks wonderful it's uh, everything strong about the first Anibelungen is, is is that it feels more conventional it's really just a traditional hero story where you have this you know incredible mythological hero essentially killing dragons and rising in fame etc but Kremhild's Revenge it goes in a completely different direction where you have this woman who is just devastated and seeking that vengeance. It feels darker. It, it's just so much more striking. It's so much more unusual. And it left far more of an impression on me. And for two more quick shout-outs to the ends end of trilogies, I want to shout out Life of Apu, which, I mean, the whole Apu trilogy is spectacular. But I really think just the last one where you see him as a father and it, it feels a little bit more poignant and also Cesar which is the final film in the Fanny trilogy which is comprised of Marius from 1931, Fanny from 1932 I believe and then finally Cesar from 36 is the first one that Pagnol directed himself the first two were directed by other directors using his script and I think it just shows that first of all he could grab a hold of this story himself and finish it his way while also just bringing everything to a conclusion so obviously this is another example of a series that is quite pre-planned, contextual, it comes together and it's it's really beautiful finale. I think it's encouraging to see that we've all got so many examples of sequels that are better than the originals. And we've not even mentioned the Dark Knight trilogy or the Godfather trilogy yet, which in my mind are two of the greatest sequels of all time. I, I mentioned Godfather Part 2, but very briefly. Oh, right. I do apologize. I must have missed it. But yeah, the, you know, the, there are so many examples of, of sequels that are better than the original. It is so easy to get in that mindset of just thinking negatively towards sequels. And your mention, Chris, of Him Hits Russia is interesting because I guess it, it kind of belongs in a category where I don't think of them as sequels. 
It's like Kill Bill 2. I like Kill Bill 2 more than Kill Bill a bit, but I didn't really bring it up because it's, it's not really a sequel to me. It's, it's kind of the film in two parts. Uh, same with like the Lord of the Rings film and mm. stuff like that. But it's kind of stretching the definition of what a sequel is, I suppose. No, that's a good point. You have, you, I guess you have, back in the day, you had a lot of two, two partners. Or uh, you're making two films back to back. It still hits the sequel, but I guess it's a different kind of sequel. The ones you often get now is that, okay, did this movie make money? Okay, we're going to continue. Is this part of a franchise? Okay, we're going to continue. Whereas this is more of a pre-planned set of films. I mean, I guess that ties in with, say, Lord of the Rings as well, even though most people generally think Fellowship of the Ring is the best. I mean, those were films that were planned out together at the beginning, and you, you still have a few of these. But it's a different way of looking at sequels, where the first film isn't actually the end of the story. The end of the story is already in mind, and it's coming in a later film. It's a little bit bad that we don't have too many of these anymore, because sequels that are pre-planned and already built into the architecture sometimes are better. But at the same time, I think we all talked about a lot of great sequels, even sequels better than the first film that were not originally planned. Definitely. I think it's worth noting that sequels that are planned from the outset are much rarer because of the great expenditure and outlay of money for the studios involved. It's a huge risk taking on a property that's going to span over a number of films without first establishing whether the audience is there. So it's it's a shame that the monetary situation comes into play with all these films, but it does exist. On that point about taking a story and spreading it over a couple of films or three films, I think Matthew did mention Kill Bill. And with Kill Bill 1 and 2, I do slightly prefer 2 to 1, but they do different things. In the first Kill Bill film, we don't even know the bride's name. She's just the bride because we get to identify with her as the killer. And then the second film was about getting to identify with her as a person. And I just think it's amazing that when Tarantino was told, no, we're not going to finance this five-hour film for you have to split into two, that he managed to do it in such a way that the two Kill Bill films do such different things, and yet both of them are such amazing experiences. It reminds me of something that we haven't mentioned with these films that are continuous plans together, is the Human Condition trilogy, the Masaki Kobayashi films. I like the second one better than the first, and the third one better than the second. And I think it has that kind of building story, that the character gets more complex as it goes on. And maybe you could argue that it's really just one big thing, and that there aren't really different films, that are just really different chapters. But I think that with these films, what with the films that are really planned together, and are just continuous and not separated, you often have that effect that the ending is the best part, because it's where everything is accomplished. It's what the narrative has been building to. I think The Lord of the Rings, many people do like Return of the King the best. I guess some people have problems with the ending for the same reason, I think, because it's kind of satisfying to have it all come together. I actually prefer the first film in the Human Condition trilogy, but I think you're also completely right. I mean, that is a fantastic trilogy. Some people argue it's the best trilogy of all time, and it's certainly up there. And I think it's further confused a little bit by the fact that each of the films have two parts with the title. So it could almost be a six-part miniseries. It does kind of play a little bit with what we think sequels are. Funnily enough, the Lord of the Rings books are actually the same. There are six books, which each book is actually divided into two. And I guess it's the same for the books that were adapted into the Human Condition trilogy we're nearing the end here but we talked a lot about sequels that were better than original that's our topic as well but as a bit of a 
conclusion. Is it the case that sequels that are better than original are necessarily the best sequels of all time? Are there some really spectacular sequels that you want to talk about and just shout out that were not necessarily better than the original, but maybe on par or, or at least had just this incredible experience that m- might have trumped many of the films you already mentioned previously? Well, I guess it's, again, something that's kind of debatable as whether or not it's a sequel, but the Cornetto trilogy comes to mind. Uh, Shaun of the Dead is one of my favorite films of all time, but The World's End actually is a film I love just as much as the first one. Again, kind of debatable whether or not we can count that as a sequel because it's more of a thematic trilogy, the characters are different. But yeah, that's the first thing that comes to mind. What's interesting about the Cornetto trilogy, I do like The World's End a lot, but I think of it as a trilogy, sort of a name only. I wouldn't really consider them to be sequels as such, other than the different Cornetto rappers. I don't know if they've got that much in common or they've got a bit of the same vibe to it. But yeah, Hot Fuzz was probably my least favourite of the three, and I've seen all of them at least twice, maybe more. In terms of sequels that I think are really good, only ones I can think of off off the top of my head are from my favourite franchises. I'm thinking with the Oceans film, Oceans 12 is a really amazing film. It often gets slammed around, but it's just so cool. Some of the things that that Soderbergh does in there with the different role that Julia Roberts gets to play in there, different super saturated colors and everything, the way the characters interact and they discuss their age, they discuss being caught, Oceans 11. It's just a really great character-building film. We actually learn more about the characters in Ocean's 12 than in 11 or 13, even though there are better films. And then I'll just go back to the Scream franchise. I'm going to say all four Scream films are about on the same level for me. The third has got the weakest reputation, and when push comes to shove, it is the weakest. It's got a bit of a voice-changing thing in there, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but everything in the third from Liev Schreiber complaining about doing a cameo in a small horror film and getting killed off to actually getting killed off, it's just completely meta. It's everything the Scream franchise does so well. <laughs> I just love the fourth Scream film also. I've said it before. It's my favorite film of the decade. It's my favorite film also about the decade. And all the Scream films, I think, are about on the same level. One example that I've thought of is a film that we discussed at some length in the Spanish horror podcast episode that we did, which was Wreck 2. Now, I absolutely love this film because it's a great example of one that builds on the ideas in the original but takes it in another direction and whilst it isn't as effective or as impressive as the original it does a great job of continuing the storyline whilst introducing enough new ideas to keep it fresh and exciting and that's quite rare for a horror sequel. Just to add I thought of a maybe more straightforward example which is the second Gremlins film. I like it just slightly less than the first one, but they are very different and both, I think, very successful. Gremlins 2 kind of takes the madcap energy of the first and turns it up to 11 and it's it's great fun. I actually have quite a few shout-outs I want to add in. The first one is the Dr. Mabus trilogy, especially because after Fritz Lang did the final film in the 60s, the Thousand Nights Dr. Mabus, there was a bunch of B-movie sequels not made by him as well. But I do see the first three as on their own. And this is a trilogy and a set of sequels that are just completely different times, different formats, because obviously the original Dr. Mabus is a silent film. And the sequel from 1933, the last film that Fritz Lang did in Germany before he left due to Nazis coming to power, 
Fisataki, and then obviously it jumped almost 30 years into the Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabus. And I think just the character, the way it's portrayed, obviously the talent of Fritz Lang to just have this kind of extreme mystery of this almost shape-shifting criminal mastermind. It's, it's playful, it's clever, it's pulpy in all the right ways. And I think that really is a great testament, not just to Dr. Mabus, but to Fritz Lang. <laughs> um, there are two other series or trilogies, or three even uh, other series trilogies I want to shout out. I want to shout out the Toy Story series. I think that both Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3 are great sequels. We can probably talk a bit more about the fourth one, but at least the first two <laughs> are, are quite great. And uh, the two uh, sequels of Hal Hartley to Henry Fool, which is uh, Faye Grimm and finally Ned Rifle, two of the better films that Hal Hartley's made since the 90s because he kind of lost his way. But just going back to these characters, building on this story and playing around in the same mold, the same atmosphere, the same deadpan humor he does, especially in the final in that rifle. I mean, those are just such great films. Um, finally, in terms of talking about series, I, I really want to talk about the Antoine Doinel series by Francois Truffaut. And I think I didn't mention them in the first part of this podcast because it's really hard to just sit there and say, okay, you know, sequels that are better than the 400 Blows. But in my opinion, Stolen Kisses and Bed and Board are up there. I mean, they are really different films because obviously he's at this point an adult and it's his love relationships that are on show and on display and the atmosphere is different. They're in color. And I think the whole journey of Antoine Donnell from a child and into an adult over a period of about 20 years and five films is a, is a really great one, even though the last film is not quite up there. And it's definitely a series I want to shout out to everyone who's listening. Uh, and just two additional sequels that I really want to bring up is Montreal's Mandrelay, which obviously cannot compare to Dogwill, but is a really good and interesting continuation. And the sequel to Agnes Wilder's Fantastic, The Gleaners and I, which just jumps in a, a couple of years later and takes up the same stories and just also plays in with the reception of the film. It's, it's a really good addition. It's go it goes a little against the topic, but because we haven't mentioned it, there's a weird, weird phenomenon where people think Paddington 2 is much better than Paddington. I don't know if you guys have seen those films. <laughs> I have seen both. I, I see where they're coming from, though. I'm not sure if I agree. To, to me, it's a mystery. I think I, I like the, the first one much better. And yeah, to me, the second one, kind of like The Godfather, where I share Saul's opinion, that it kind of rehashes what the first one does. But anyway, I just wanted to, to shout that out. Just to clarify, my opinion with Godfather 2 was that it's a sequel to a film that was perfect as it is. The whole Closing Doors first Godfather film is like, it doesn't need to take it any further. I've seen the two Paddington films. I did prefer the second from memory. It's been a few years. I like them both about the same. I wouldn't say the second one's massively better than the first one. Yeah, I'll agree with that. It has a slightly more unique visual style. It even looks a little bit more like a Wes Anderson film, just how it uses colors. I think that's some of what people are picking up on, but uh, to me, they're about the same. Yeah, I see that mentioned a lot of the time, but I think it's just that Paddington 2 has a sequence that kind of explicitly recalls a section in Gun Be the Best Hotel. But the first one already looks like a Wes Anderson film to me. I don't know. 
<laughs> Let's just round up the podcast with my two final questions. Uh, the first one is, do you think they'll ever get tired of making sequels? And two, uh, do you think sequels have or will change their reputation, either for better or worse? There's no chance that they'll ever get bored of making sequels. They make too much money for everyone involved, whether they are great films <laughs> or not. So I don't think that will ever change. The reputation of sequels, again, I think it's unlikely to change. We've clearly pinpointed some shining examples where sequels can be just as good as the original, if not better, although it does seem that that is usually a, a rarity. So I can't see a great shift in the perception of sequels anytime soon. Uh, I guess likewise, I don't really see people stopping making sequels. I don't think it's that much of a problem, though, because as I pointed out with my gigantic list where I rambled on, I think there are tons of great sequels out there. I think the whole remake situation is far more dire than the sequel situation. I don't <laughs> like countless remakes coming out. But in terms of sequels, no, I don't think it's a problem. I think there's tons of great sequels or at least very decent sequels being made. So I don't see it as a problem. Will the reputation change? I think possibly. I'd like to think so because I don't like the way that sequels automatically get slammed because there's lots of sequels that I like. So I think if people are exposed to enough sequels that actually do things, really great and creative things, the general perception might change. I don't know if any time soon, but yeah, I don't think we'll stop making them. And I don't think they really need to because... Even if a sequel sucks, even if it's terrible, like The Exorcist Part 2, it's not <laughs> going to ruin the first film. The first film is its own entity. You can't destroy the first film unless you go back and re-edit it and then destroy original <laughs> copies of it. <laughs> the George Lucas plan. <laughs> and as, as for my part, I don't really think they'll ever get tired of making sequels, but I do think the reputation will somewhat change, if, if only because, uh, as we talked about earlier in this podcast, the nature of sequels have changed. We now have franchises with 15, 20, 30 films which are just loosely connected, where you have sequel series within franchises. Like we talked about where you have Iron Man 1, 2, 3, you have Tor 1, 2, 3, uh, but they interact with other films. I do think that the way that sequels are seen and the way we react to them will change because the idea of a shared universe, the idea of sequels that are barely sequels, or even Shyamalan's uh, idea of sequels that are surprisingly sequels, all comply into the same thing where what the sequel is will change if it hasn't already. Yeah, I definitely agree that sequels are not going anywhere. They've been there the whole time. I mean, the 30s, Universal was making a bunch of sequels, The Thin Man too. Um, and even in literature, like the 19th century, you got uh, The Three Musketeers, Little Women. These books that were hugely successful, they got sequels because it's just commercially advantageous. But I, I think actually the view of sequels is already changing, what you described, Chris. I would say it's I mean, there are still people who bemoan the existence of sequels, but I think it has been changing in the past five years, maybe. I've, I've seen a lot of more people having a more moderate, I guess, position. Well, moderation is one thing we cannot expect from the creation of sequels. I think coming up over the next few years, we can expect Marvel and DC franchises to keep growing. So while this may have caused people's opinions to moderate, uh, the production will not. 
However, as we talked about, many of these films can actually be great or even better than the originals. And as these franchises expand and grow in particular, I think we will see more and more unique voices get to play with them. And we'll see more and more unique entries. I mean, we're already hearing about the first Marvel horror film. So there's going to be a lot of things that will be interesting to see in the future. Let us know what your favorite sequels are and which sequels you think are better than the originals. Not to mention your opinion on sequels in general at icmforum.com. We will have a thread dedicated to this episode, so you can go straight there and discuss. As always, thank you so much for listening and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com.